Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, April the 25th, 2023. It is currently 4.52 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. There are two things that I hate that I want to talk about right now. Now, when I say there's there's not just two things I hate, I hate many things. But for this episode, to introduce this episode, I want to mention two things that I just absolutely hate. I despise them so very much. There are a lot of things I hate in life, but for this episode, there's only two things I want to mention. The first thing I hate is when I sit in this studio in front of this very microphone, I press all of the buttons to go live all over the internet and I go live for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half. I think we've gone... I think we've done a two-hour long uh, broadcast before, but no matter if it's 15 minutes, no matter if it's two hours, I absolutely hate that when it's over, I open my email and I find out that that broadcast just made someone upset. It irritated them. It made them angry. It bothered them in some way, shape, or form. Because the last thing I want to do is spend any amount of time producing content that's only going to make people upset. I truly want to benefit people. I truly want to help people. But because I do a theology podcast, it's inevitable. Like like no matter what I talk about, someone's going to disagree. Someone. It's like, it's just built in to the the topic. Anything related to the Bible, anything related to theology, anything related to doctrine, anything related to that world, someone's going to disagree. It's, it's a, it's, an absolute guarantee. It's, it's a better guarantee than taxes and death. It's, it's, it's certain. It's like written in stone. You talk about theology. You talk about the Bible. You talk about doctrine. Someone's going to get, someone's going to get upset. Someone's going to get angry, but it's, I still hate it. The last thing I want to know is that I was talking about something and the end result of all of my effort is someone is just now angry with me. They're upset with me. They're frustrated. They're bothered. They're emotional. They're sad. They're depressed. They're discouraged. Whatever the words may be. I mean, what you would obviously, I mean, I mean, I'm a human being. I mean, like, I mean, come on. I'm just a human being. I'm just a sinner sitting in front of a microphone. I mean, what you want to hear is thank you so much for what you did. That was amazing. That was awesome. I learned something. You want that positive feedback, but to be fair, most of the time, if you're going to get an email, it's going to be negative because it's more and people are much more likely to email you and tell you what you did wrong than they will to email you if you did anything right. That's just the way it works. You understand that going into this, you know, world of, of online ministry or online theological discussion. So I'm aware of that, but I still hate it. Because it just, it's so like, you open your email inbox and you're just like, no, 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 not that kind of email. I don't want that. 
because it's just so frustrating. But I understand it. I understand it. And I do appreciate everyone who gets upset. I would rather you email me and tell me you're upset than not telling me because at least I can try to address it and maybe we can find some common ground. I mean, maybe, maybe we can find common ground and then you don't, you're not as frustrated with me. You don't hate me, hate me, or possibly when it's all said and done, you hate me more, but I'm going to do my very best. So that's the first thing I hate. I hate that um, when I do a broadcast, in many cases, it leads people to being upset, bothered, I mean, whatever the correct words are. I'm not trying to say, I mean, like I get so many emails with people upset with me. It's hard to, to add, you know, add every correct description, anger, sadness, frustration, mad, whatever, whatever the words may be. There are many I could use, but you get the idea. I hate that. The second thing I hate, and I truly loathe this so very much, is it so, I don't even know the words. It's so maddening. It's so discouraging. It's so depressing that as Christians, we don't agree on anything. We don't agree on how to interpret the Bible. We don't agree on how to interpret specific books. We don't agree on how to interpret specific verses. We don't even agree on how to interpret words. This thing about this, Christians don't agree on how to interpret words. The word baptism, what does it mean? Repentance, what does it mean? There's no, there's disagreements on just the meaning of the, the words themselves, right? Okay, so we don't agree on the meaning of words. We don't agree on the meaning of verses. We don't agree on the meaning of chapters. We don't agree on the meaning of books. We don't even agree on the meaning. Not only do we not agree, agree on the meaning, we don't even agree within Christianity on what is the correct rules and how you interpret something. We don't even agree on hermeneutics. In other words, words, what are the rules that should govern our interpretations? I mean, there has to be rules to govern interpretation. There has to be. If there's no rules to govern interpretation, then it's just a free-for-all, right? It's just, it's just, it's interpretive relativism. Everyone can just do what is right in their own eyes. There has to be rules. It's like with any, anything written, there are rules to govern how... There's words have definitions, words fit together. Like there, there is correct ways to interpret something. But as Christians, we don't agree on the hermeneutical system, which should be utilized to interpret something. We don't agree like, wait a minute, in the Old Testament, do we see those prophecies as being fulfilled literally in the history of Israel in the future? Or do we see them being fulfilled spiritually in the church? When it says Israel, do we see that as the nation or do we understand as that as the church? I could just go on and on and on and on and on and on. It's a never ending list of disagreements. And those disagreements fundamentally are hermeneutical disagreements because we don't agree on which hermeneutical principles to apply. Look, if you're using a different hermeneutical, uh, if you're using different hermeneutical principles than I'm using, then we're never going to come to a conclusion. If you if you look at the scripture and believe God tells you what it means, and I don't believe God is telling me what it means, but I have to use the basic rules of interpretation as we would use for any written content, we're never going to come to the same conclusion. Like there's so many issues there, but it is maddening. It is frustrating. And so here, just now put the two together. If I get an email and someone is upset and someone is bothered, but then it, it it's the reason they're upset and bothered is because we don't agree on how to interpret something. Then I get I get well I get both of them at the same time, 
And it's depressing. It makes you question what you're even doing because you're like, now they're mad at me. And now we can't come to an agreement because we can't agree on how to interpret it. So what do you do? Well, they'll go find the people who agree with their interpretation and they'll just move on and they'll stop listening to me. So then I'm like, I'll lose another listener because now they don't agree with how I interpret scripture. So they'll go find someone who agrees with the way they interpret scripture and be like, you're a great teacher until they interpret something that they don't like. Then they'll be like, no, I'll go find someone else. It's just a, it's just the maddening world of Christianity. It really is. I know when I say that Christians get defensive, but come on, it's just the reality. I, I watch it unfold every single day. Now, I mention all of those things I hate because I received an email. Hang on. Let me open my iPad. I received an email at 12.57 p.m. Central Time. I received this email because today, for the Today's Focus, we looked at the Song of Solomon. I believe it was chapter 2, verse 10. The Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10, which reads, My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And then I played the devotional, the audio devotional of Morning and Evening by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon does what most Christians do. He takes Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 10, and and he turns it into a picture, an allegory of Christ and his love for us. So in this particular case, my beloved spake and said unto me, my beloved, that's Christ. He's our beloved. Rise up, my love, my fair one. I'm his love. I'm his fair one, right? So he's my beloved. I'm the love. I'm the fair one. And he tells me to rise up and come away with him. And this is Christ telling me, rise up, leave worldliness, leave, set your affections on things above and turns it all into a spiritual allegory. And of course, it sounds beautiful. It sounds spiritual. It sounds pious. But the, the correct or the answer is, is it the right way to handle the song of Solomon? And I challenge that way of interpreting scripture. And I try to give some basic rules that I think needs to be applied when interpreting scripture and turning something into a spiritual allegory or turning it into a type. Right. Because either it's either we 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 have to understand what it is. Like, is it a historical narrative? Well, when did it become a spiritual type? When do we when do we make it an allegory? So, so some basic questions. And one of the things I said is, hey, even if you, if you take the Song of Solomon and want to do it that way, well, then just do this. Interpret it that way, verse by verse by verse. Do a verse by verse study of the Song of Solomon, interpreting it as a spiritual allegory. And I'm sorry, it's going to become uncomfortable and it's going to become difficult. It just is. But, but by all means, go ahead and, and, and do that. So I kind of challenged it, but I really kind of, I tried, I tried my best to kind of hand it to people to just give them some thoughts. But I did ask for people to share their thoughts and someone took the time to share their thoughts and they shared a lot of them. And I'm very appreciative that they did because it says, okay, you asked Song of Songs. That was the title of the email. Obviously, I'm not giving name or anything along those lines, obviously. Now, again, I'm, I'm sad that they'd so disagree. I'm frustrated that Christians, we, we look, this is an example. We don't agree on how to interpret the Song of Solomon. 
So who's right? See, that, that's always what it comes down to. Who's, whose interpretation is right? Who gets to say which interpretation is right? Like, we think about this. Okay, let me, let me just try to explain. If we take a great novel in history, and someone's going to be like, this is a good novel. Someone's going to say, this is garbage. This is great. This, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute now. First of all, we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we judging based off an opinion? You love it. You don't love it. Okay. Well, that's just opinion. Now, if it's just an opinion, you can say things like, it's my favorite. It's the best to me because now you're not making an objective standard. You're not making an objective claim about its quality. You're making a subjective claim, claim about how you feel about it. You can do this with music or movies or a TV show or a novel, right? If you say things like, it's my favorite. I, it's the best I've ever read. Like you're making claims that just shows you it's your subjective opinion. Well, then there's no reason to argue or debate. I could just say, well, it's not my favorite. I don't like it, but who cares, right? Because There's no right or wrong answer. It's subjective. But if you make claims, this is the greatest novel ever written. It's the top five. It's better than once you start making these objective declarations. Well, now guess what? Before we can argue, before I can come to you and go, no, 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 no. Lord of the Rings is trash. We first have to agree on what, what are, what is the criteria in which we are judging it? What is the criteria, right? So then we would have to come to an agreed upon cri- criteria. Then we would have to apply the criteria to the two books we disagree with and then see based off that criteria, which one is the best and which one isn't. So, so much of our discussions in life is, is very subjective. But once you become, once you make an objective claim, well, then you've got to have an agreed upon standard in which to judge that objective claim. That makes perfect sense, right? So if we come to the Song of Solomon and you're like, we should interpret it this way. And I'm like, no, we should interpret it this way. Well, before we can even address that, well, what's the agreed upon hermeneutic? What hermeneutic are you using? Now, if you turn to the Song of Solomon and to a full-blown allegorical, spiritualized picture of Christ and his love for the church, and I'm using it in a much more historical, grammatical, literal approach, we're not going to come to the same conclusion, ladies and gentlemen. You've gone straight allegorical hermeneutical system, and I'm using a historical grammatical one. We're, We're not going to come to the same conclusion. We could argue about it from now until Jesus comes back, and then we could argue through it throughout all of eternity, and we would never come to an agreement because we have a completely different basis in how we're interpreting the book. If I'm arguing with an all-millennialist, right? And they're like, no, no, no. That promise to Israel, that's not literal Israel. That's spiritual Israel. And that promise is not going to be fulfilled literally. It's going to be filled spiritually. And then someone else is a dispensationalist who takes it. No, that's literal Israel. It's going to be fulfilled literally, not to the church, but to Israel. You're never going to, look, you can argue all day. Someone's got, you've got to have an agreed upon hermeneutic. One is looking at it, spiritualizing it, allegorizing it, not taking it literal. The other one is you, you will never come to an agreement. You can debate until your voice is gone and it's just a waste of time. So someone wanted to talk to me about the song of Solomon. 
Clearly, they hold to a different perspective on the book. Clearly, they disagree with my hermeneutical principles that I apply. I know, shocking, Christians not agreeing on hermeneutics. What are you going to tell me next? That we don't agree on anything? But we don't even agree on the hermeneutical, we don't agree on the hermeneutical principles. We don't. So let's go through this email and let's see what we can learn. On one hand, I'm not really so interested in trying to answer this person as much as I'm interested in trying to just demonstrate the frustration that I think all Christians should feel because it should bother all of us that we can't agree on anything. But I want to just, he's going to, this person, uh, I don't remember if it's a he, I don't remember, um, I don't remember uh, in, in the top of my brain the name, but whom, whomever it may be, he, she, whatever they may be, um, I'm more interested, they, they take a position that's, I would call more the majority position. In other words, they would have more people on their side than I would have on my side, right? They would, they could probably walk into most conservative churches and they'd be like, you're right, brother. That guy in that podcast is a straight idiot. Don't listen to him. And I understand that. So because they take the, the majority position, then I thought, well, at least I can try to articulate my my disagreement with the majority position. So it's not really about the emailer as much as I want to take, they articulate the position, which gives me the opportunity to talk about the position, not really talking about the person who's emailing in any way, shape or form, if that makes sense. I'm trying to separate the subject from the person, right? Because, because I don't like, I don't want the person to feel like it's a personal, it's not a personal thing. You present, you've presented a position. Now I'm going to take the position and I'm walking away in a sense from you. It's not a, per- now we're going to, we're going to take the position and put it over here and address the position without no person, without us being personally involved in it, if that makes sense. Because I don't like it to feel personal. So if I disagree with the position, it's nothing to say about the person, if that makes some kind of sense. I hope it does. All right. So are you ready? Here we go. I'm going to have to unplug my iPad from the charger. I don't know how far we're going to get. This may turn into a 17-part series. But here we go, ladies and gentlemen. The email begins. You know how you listen to something and you get really irritated and then feel compelled to respond, but you know you're tempted to do so in the flesh? Yeah. So I was skimming your titles to see if there was ever a response to my last email And a few titles here and there make me curious. Okay, now stop right here. First of all, I do apologize if I did not respond to a previous email. Now, I I just want everyone to understand, trying to keep up with emails, at times I miss them, okay? If I look at my inbox currently, I have 100,866 emails. And don't tell me to delete and clean out my inbox because I'm always cleaning out my inbox, okay? So, um, yeah, and and... And not only that, the person who emailed me, their email did not go to my inbox. It went to my spam file. And I don't even know why I looked in the spam folder. So there was a good chance I could have missed this one. So if I, if you ever email me and I do not respond, just keep emailing me once a day. Just keep emailing me once a day. Just keep emailing me once a day. Most of the time, depending on the email, I will try to address it and answer it Uh Sometimes on a podcast, it's just easier for me than sitting. Look, if I try to type out a response to everyone, I'm going to have to hire a team of people. All right. I just, there's just no way I can try to do that. All right. And emails require much more 
construction, thinking it through, you know, making sure it's all spelled correctly, punctuated correctly. So a lot of times I will try to answer here. So I do apologize. If I missed your email, please, I apologize. I am sorry. Just resend it. I will get to it. I promise you. All right. So they were skimming some titles and they say uh, here and there and, and, uh, my last email and a few titles here and there make me curious. So that I, I'm assuming that means I don't listen to all of my content. I, maybe just some of the content. I don't know. All right, but here we go. I know we've had a funny and peculiar form of interaction and your forte is verbal and mine is written. And I appreciate the different strengths there. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. And I look, um, I do. I want to make sure I understand. It's not, I, yes, my forte much more is verbal than written. And really, it's just time. Like I just, you know, if I do one broadcast and then I go sit for three hours answering emails, that that could be three more live broadcasts. That's the way I think about it, right? And so if I don't give anyone's name, I don't give where they're from, I, I don't say a word about the person, then I feel like, mo- put it this way, if I feel like the email will benefit the majority of people listening, then I will answer it via uh, via a, a program because I'm not giving any personal information. I'm removing the person as far from it as possible. So um, it's just easier for me just to turn on the microphone and do, because just to try to go through all of this in an email, it would take me like this email, as long as this is, it, it's probably going to take me three or four podcast episodes to address this, much less trying to respond to everything in it. It would literally probably take me who knows how long. All right. But here we go. But the whole song of Solomon, now they just say song, but this whole song is just about sex kind of shtick is just so irritating. And for me, just bad fruit from the tree of unbelief and false religion. Whoa. Are you talking about coming in with guns blazing? So if you believe the Song of Solomon is just about a intimate relationship between a man and a woman, right? Then if you, if that's your hermeneutic, if that's the conclusion you come to, well, this person is tired of that kind of shtick and is, and is irritated by it. And then here's the accusations. It's bad fruit from the tree of unbelief and false religion. Whoa. So if someone believes that, they, they, they have a false religion? They're, they're not saved? You're telling me a saved person could not come to that hermeneutical conclusion about the Song of Solomon and go, hmm. Now, I want to remind everyone of what I said in my podcast episode this morning, I took my church and said, let's work through the Song of Solomon verse by verse. Now we're going to use, I can't remember the book we use, which took, it's spiritual, it's allegorical, it's about Christ and this church. And I cannot remember how far we got into it. And I'm like, okay, guys, what do you think? And everybody was kind of like, oh my, I don't like that. Like, how do we spiritualize that? Like it got uncomfortable, right? Now we read what they tried to say about it. And it was, it was, look, when you're spiritualizing something and you're really just like, come on, man, you're just making stuff up because there's nothing in the text that would lead to that spiritual interpretation. You've got a problem. So I, just for the record, 
I tried to go through the book and teach it in an allegorical and spiritual way. And you get so far into the book and you're like, this is just like, I'm just making stuff up now. Like I'm taking the words on the page and just like, hey, ignore what's on the page. This is about Jesus and how much he loves you. And I'm like, no, that's not what the text says (laughs) in any way, shape or form. Now, there are some parts of it where I'm like, okay, that could possibly work. That could possibly work. There are some verses I'm like, okay, I can make it work. But then I'm like, wait a minute. So do I have two different rules of interpretation for the Song of Solomon? These verses are spiritual. These verses are literal. Like, okay, now am I being consistent in my hermeneutic? Just because someone has a different hermeneutical conclusion doesn't mean it's the fruit. It's the bad fruit of false religion. It could mean they just use a different hermeneutical system than you. I will never in this lifetime or in eternity will ever figure out how anyone who reads the Bible says, hey, let's take a baby when they're eight days old and baptize it. Boom, boom, boom. They become a magic Christian or boom, boom. They now have the mark of the covenant and now they're a member of the visible church. I don't know how in the world you come to that conclusion reading the scripture, but I'm going to be very careful to say, well, they came to this conclusion because they're lost heretics. I think it's wrong, but maybe it's because we're using a different hermeneutical system. Right? So I I don't think we have to attack someone who believes that the Song of Solomon is a book about physical intimacy and the love between a man and a woman and immediately say it's the fruit of, of, of unbelief and false religion. It could be the result of a different hermeneutical system. As you know, I can tend to be blunt and not as tactful as I would, as, as I would. And a lot of that is just how difficult I found talking with Christians is, as they often pull me into the flesh with provocation and mistreatment. And then you start to get over defensive and have a battle hardened attitude before you even begin. And I admit that is not a good thing. Well, look, I, I do understand talking to Christians can be maddening. I do. Look, I com- we're in complete agreement drives me crazy. Now, what drives me crazy is because of the thing I started with. We can't agree on anything. You start talking to Christians. I I would rather talk to Christians about the weather, about sports, underwater basket weaving, bubble gum blowing contact, any subject other than the Bible, Jesus, or theology, because almost inevitably it's going to end up in a disagreement. And it's going to get frustrating. I, that is sad. It's like, oh, here's a group of Christians. Okay, what can we talk about? What can we talk about? Hey, how's the weather, guys? Hey, guys, you want to do storm chasing? Hey, guys, you want to talk about underwater basket weaving? Hey, guys, you want to talk about the latest Marvel movie? Hey, guys, you want to talk anything? I mean, it, literally any subject. If they, someone says, Jesus, I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. Where are you going? Well, there's some atheists over there talking about Jesus. It'll probably, well, I'll probably be much more in agreement with them than any of you. And that's sad, but it's just the reality. So I feel you there. I, we're on the same page there. And yes, Next thing you know, I can do the same thing. I can get frustrated and I can act in a way that I shouldn't. But I would just point out, you you can't just start off by saying because someone has a different interpretation of the Song of Solomon, that it's it's the fruit of unbelief and false religion. Like that's just not, that's just not fair. 
that's just not fair. And 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 let's I mean th- th- let's really get down to it. Let's say someone takes the Song of Solomon and, and completely allegorizes it, like. Poof. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus and the church. And someone else is like, no, it's a very real picture of a intimate relationship between a man and a woman. Now, let's say they have those two different interpretations. Why would one be the sign of unbelief? Like, does that change any major theological position? Does that change what someone believes about Jesus, the Trinity, salvation, redemption, atonement, justification, imputation, propitiation. I mean, does that, does that, I don't think that would have any impact on anything other than how we approach the Song of Solomon. Now, the real question is, okay, no, no, no. It's not about attacking whether someone is saved or unsaved. It would be just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What hermeneutical system are you using? Like, what, what, what's, what, what are you using? Well, I'm using an allegorical approach. Okay, which allegorical system? The Jewish allegorical system? The Roman allegorical? Oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Just, I, I can get you some books on hermeneutics that will show you all the different approaches in church history and all the different schools of hermeneutics. There are lots of them. And you can be like, oh, okay, well, Man, we're never going to agree. If you're if if that's the system you're using, well, I'm using something completely different. So, hey, thank you for sharing your view. I mean, there's just no point in having a discussion at that point. We're never going to agree. Like that's to me. Whenever someone wants to argue with me about scripture, my first thought is, so what hermeneutical system are you using? Oh, okay, okay. Well, then, all right. Well, thank you for listening. But we're just never going to be able to agree because we're using two different hermeneutical. Look, if you're using two different hermeneutical systems, you will never come to the same conclusion. All right, let's continue. The whole argument of only if an Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament, can it speak of Christ is just silly and disingenuous to me. All right. Now, they, they're going after my my perspective that they call silly and disingenuous. I don't know how I'm being disingenuous. I'm being very genuine. <laughs> I'm being very genuine. All right. My perspective is, we come to an Old Testament passage, right? And I, and I look at it. I'm like, hmm, could that picture Christ in some way, shape, or form? Could that show me Christ in some way, shape, or form? All right, stop. Before I do anything else, I'm going to go to the New Testament. I'm going to look to see, is this passage quoted in the New Testament? Boom. If it is, how does the New Testament writer use it? Does the New Testament writer use it to point to Christ? Or does the New Testament writer use it to do something else? Now, if the New Testament writer does something else with it, well, then that would cause me pause. Well, wait a minute. They didn't use it to point to Christ. So why am I using it to point to Christ? Because the New Testament writer who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit did not do that. That would give me pause. I, I, don't, it's, I don't see how that's silly or disingenuous. That sounds to me pretty smart. Second, if they point it directly to Christ, well, then problem solved, right? Now I have a New Testament writer writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who takes that passage and applies it to Christ. All right, so now we're in agreement. So if the New Testament writer doesn't point it to Christ, but uses the scripture, then I'm going to use it the way they use it. Second, if they use it about Christ, then I'm going to use it about Christ. That to me sounds like solid, safe, biblical, hermeneutical principles. Now, what do I do if the New Testament writer doesn't even quote it? 
What do I do if the New Testament uh, uh, New Testament writer doesn't do anything at all with it? Okay, well, now I have to look at the passage and determine if I'm going to make this about Christ, what is my what are the ba- what is the basis for me doing so? What is the basis for me doing so? What is the basis? Is it just that I'm pre- I'm coming up with a presupposition that every single verse is about Christ? Now, if that is your presupposition, on the basis of what? On the basis of what? Give me one second. Hang on, give me one second. I'm looking up something. I believe it's Luke 24. This is the one that's often quoted. Been in plenty of hermeneutics class classes where I've had to deal with this. Luke 24. It's verse 47. Um, I believe it's 47. Or maybe it's 27. Luke 24. Okay, yeah, Luke 24, 27. All right. Uh then speaking of Jesus, right, 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, the way some read this is, hey, he started in Genesis 1, 1. He went through every single verse and showed them how every single verse is about him. That's ridiculous because if he, like, he would have been sitting there for how long? Like, like th- th- by the time they got done with this conversation, I mean, Jesus would have been on earth for another two years after his resurrection. This is af- after Jesus' resurrection. Clearly, that's not the way it worked, right? Clearly, this was a short amount of time that he spent with them. So he didn't go through every single verse. So how do we understand this? It just makes perfect sense just to read this in a normal way that he started in Moses and all the prophets and expounded unto them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, everything in scripture that is about him. That's what he expounded. We don't know if that was 15 passages, 20 passages. We don't know. Just whatever was in the scripture that is about him, he expounded. He doesn't give us the list. Now, he says, beginning with Moses, so that there would be, if we see Mosaic authorship of the first five books, there would be then something in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Something in those five books would be about him. Also, and then all the prophets. Then we go to the prophets. Clearly, there are things in the prophets that we know point to Christ, like Isaiah, because the New Testament quotes it and says it's about Christ. So I think you could argue there are things in the first five books of the Bible, right? The Pentateuch, the first five, that is quoted in the New Testament and is pointed to Christ. And I think you could clearly say there are things in the prophets that are quoted in the New Testament that point to Christ. So that doesn't mean every single verse, every single verse. No. So, so, so first of all, it's not silly or disingenuous to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys, wait a minute, guys. We, we've got to have, we got to have some kind of system. We got to have something controlling what we're doing. You can't just say, Hey, every scripture is about Jesus and I can find him whenever I want. That's not hermeneutics. That's just spiritual. That's hermeneutical anarchy. There's got to be something that controls what you're doing, right? I can't just read a book that's about, 
the history of stop signs and get done and say, oh, that book taught me how to plant a tree. I mean, there are rules that govern how we understand what we read. Words have meaning. The intent of the author, what was the purpose when it was written? There are things that govern what we do with the text. That's not crazy. That's not silly. That's not disingenuous. That's just basic rules of biblical interpretation, basic rules of hermeneutics. So my thing is, first, does the Old Testament, is, is the Old Testament passage found in the New Testament? If it is, what does the New Testament writer do? What do, what do they do with it? If they don't apply it to Christ, well, then I'm going to follow their direction. And you can disagree with me all day, but I'm going to agree with people who wrote the Bible versus someone who didn't. Second, if the New Testament writer uses it and applies it to Christ, well, then I'm going to go with the New Testament writer because once again, they're writing under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go with him over anybody else. And now if the New Testament writers do nothing with it, that gives me pause. Wow, I, how is that a bad thing? <laughs> like, 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 that's a bad, that to me sounds reasonable. So then what do I do? Well, I go look at the text and then I start looking for, I need some textual, I, I've got to get some textual clue. Something's got to jump out at me that going, whoa, this is an odd, this is an odd thing here. What, what is going on here? That seems kind of odd. What do I do with that? Right? Then I start looking. Okay, if I start saying this points to Christ, what am I basing this off of? I can't be basing it off of because, well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 10 is about Jesus and the church. That doesn't, who cares? He's not the authority. So, so what, what, what am I using? All right. Um, so, so then, so then I have to, I have to try to figure out what I'm doing. Now, he's going to point to one specific example, which I'm, I'm grateful for. All right. So here we go. This person says this. So the whole argument of only if an Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament, uh, can it speak of Christ is just silly and disingenuous to me. Where in the New Testament is Isaac quoted as a type of Christ? Oh, that's right. It's not. And you will tell me that is bad hermeneutics and exegesis. If I see this is one of the strongest types of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, who says it's the strongest type of Christ in the Old Testament? Some would say Joseph is the strongest type. He's saying Isaac is the strongest type. Who gets to say who's the strongest? Who? Where are the rules? What are, what are the rules? Who, who gets to make these determinations? Okay, hang on. I'm looking at something. Okay. Uh, Okay, well, you see, I, I get all kinds of things. Well, most, see, Joseph. I knew I knew I was going to get something that said Joseph. I knew I was going to end up being led to Joseph. Um, so, but if you look up anything about Old Testament types of Christ, you're going to get all kinds of articles, all kinds of articles, man. They're just, there's, there's books and books and books written on the subject. And when you get into it, it just becomes a subjective, it becomes crazy. We, we gave, um, I, I even worked through this. 
if, if you'll look up my entire series on typology, we worked through this showing just how crazy it could get. We used J. Sidlow Baxter, Explore the Book, one of the books I had to use, I think, in the first school I ever went to. And you look at some of the things he says as a type and you're like, how in the world did he come to that conclusion? There is no textual basis. Look, I can go to anything in the Bible and go, that's a picture of Christ. I can go to anything in the Bible and go, that's a picture of the church. There's got to be, shouldn't there be a rule? Shouldn't there be some rule that governs it? Or can it just get completely out of control? I, I gave the example is one of the schools I went to. He, he went so far into the typology. Next thing you know, he's saying Satan is in charge of the corporate church. Everyone has to flee the church or you're taking the mark of the beast. And he's using Jeremiah and Ezekiel to prove his point. Spiritualizing and turning it all into a type. So you would say, well, he went too far. Well, who gets to say who goes too far in their typology? Where are the rules? If you don't establish rules, then you can make anything a type. So let's take Isaac. Are we claiming that the original intent of that historical narrative, all of it, was to point to Jesus? Now, you can make that assertion. You can make that claim. But none of the New Testament writers caught on. None of the New Testament writers even bothered. Nobody, nobody. Nobody under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit thought, man, the greatest type of Christ in the entire Bible is Isaac, but let, nobody's going to write about it. Why didn't God inspire any of them to mention it? Melchizedek is mentioned in the New Testament, is he not? Is he not mentioned? Right? So, okay. So, um, they go on to say, It says, uh, all right, so it says, uh, this is one of the strongest types of Christ in the Old Testament. That is insane. There are thousands of types not directly quoted in the New Testament, and nowhere is this special rule of it has to be quoted verbatim is in the New Testament, and specifically, it is a type of Christ. Okay, let's stop right here. Let's stop right here. Okay. All right, good. This Now they get somewhere. All right. There's thousands of types. And guess who gets to determine when it's a type? Oh, let me see. Who gets to determine? Who gets to determine? Who gets? I want to know. Who gets to make the determination? Oh, wait. You get to make the determination. Wait. Where is that rule that you get to make the determination? Like, you're going to be using some kind of rule, Right. You're going to, you're going to be like, no, 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 no. That doesn't, like if you, I've watched, I've had multiple books on types and the books disagree with each other. So if you're going to start working typology, are there rules to govern the typology? Where did those rules come from? Because you're, you're demanding that I, you're saying, well, that rule that it has to be quoted in the New Testament, that rule is not verbatim in the Bible. Okay. Well, then what rules of hermeneutics come from the Bible? Where do we get our hermeneutical rules from then? Because the Bible doesn't lay out our hermeneutical rules. You can say compare scripture with scripture. That's not a hermeneutical rule. That, do, that doesn't mean anything. Anybody can compare one scripture to another scripture and link them together and come up to all kinds of fraudulent doctrines. Where is the rule? 
Now, if we go back to Augustine and church history and read all of his, his work on hermeneutics, which I took my church through at least part of the book, where did Augustine say we learn how to interpret? Oh, yeah, where we learn how to interpret everything. When you learn to read and you learn reading comprehension skills and you learn reading interpretive skills, those skills apply to the scripture just like they apply to any other book. I don't read a book about a tree and go, oh, no, 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 no. It's a picture of a spacecraft, unless there's something in the book that would lead me to go, wait, I don't think this is about a tree. I don't think this is about, I think that the author is doing something with this. Now, if I find that in the writing, then okay, but the author typically will give you some kind of clue, right? But I guess, are we not to bring any hermeneutical rules to the scripture? Are we just to throw them all out? We just throw them all out. Just throw them all out. Just, just, just do whatever you want. I I mean, like, it cannot be a hermeneutical free for all. So let me state it again. If you don't want me to call it a rule, I will state this, and this is a dogmatic truth. If I allow the New Testament writer to tell me what I can and cannot do with an Old Testament passage, that writer is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so I'm relying on the Holy Spirit to give me insight in how to interpret or handle an Old Testament passage. That, if you don't like that as a rule, that would just seem to make logical sense that I'm relying on inspired scripture to give me the clue and what to do or not do with the text of scripture. But I'm even allowing that outside of that basic guiding principle that sometimes a text will be like, oh man, there's something going on here. And then I'm all open. I'm open to hear Okay, what are your textual reasons for doing this? What are your textual reasons for claiming this is a sign? This is a type. What, what is your, what is your rule? What, what, how did you come to the conclusion? Oh, just what, what? Now I got no problem. I, and I even allowed for this. See, this is just weird that somebody would get mad for me, mad at me because I even allowed for this that I at times would say, okay, New Testament doesn't say this. New Testament doesn't use this, but I do find there's some interesting similarities between Isaac and Jesus. Here are the similarities. Give everyone the similarities. Here's, here's five things about Isaac, five things about Jesus. That's interesting, is it not? See, I'm not saying it's a type. I'm not saying that was the purpose of it. I'm just pointing out through observation, which is the key to Bible study, I'm just observing, man, look at this. Look at this. This, this is really, this is really interesting. Why is that wrong? Why is it wrong to just say, look at the similarities? Or if you learn, if you see something about Jesus in the New Testament, you're like, oh, oh, this reminds me of this chapter about Isaac. Let's go look at this chapter about Isaac and look at this. Do you see? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Without drawing a dogmatic certainty that the scriptures don't necessarily give me. I don't know how that is some that I'm that that I'm silly or disingenuous. I'm trying to be as genuine as I can to correctly handle the text. 
You where because you I'm assuming the person who wrote this. Well, first, they want me to use hermeneutical rules to interpret their email. And I'm assuming his email does not give me those hermeneutical rules. Second, even where I'm, I'm assuming the person who wrote this email, they use some hermeneutical system in order to interpret the Bible. Like, I don't know, the Song of Solomon. <laughs> well, does the Song of Solomon give you the hermeneutical rules which you're utilizing to interpret the Song of Solomon? Here we go. There are thousands of types not directly quoted in the New Testament. And nowhere is the special rule of it has to be quoted verbatim in the New Testament. And specifically, it is a type of Christ. That idea itself is bad hermeneutics. That idea is bad hermeneutics. So guess what? He just said what I'm doing is bad hermeneutics. Based on what rule? Hey guys, I'm using bad hermeneutics according to what, 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 what rule? What, what rule are you citing? What, what rule? Where is it? According to your system of hermeneutics? This over intellectualism and laying down certain rigid rules of exegesis to try like to protect oneself from weird, unbalanced over spiritualism or crazy uh, charismania is just the wrong way to stay in the middle and falls into another ditch to avoid the opposite one. According to you, according to you, you're, you're not the standard. So why, 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 why did you become the magisterial authority telling me how to interpret scripture? I'm trying to base my interpretive principles on, I don't know, years of schooling and how many degrees do I have in theological education, religious education, and biblical studies? It's, it's studying hermeneutics, studying hermeneutics, trying to understand hermeneutical principles. And I'm very much aware that there are different systems. So identify your hermeneutical school. And then fine, go with it. I'm not here to argue with you. I'm just not going to possibly agree with your hermeneutical system. But at least identify your system. It can't just be the one you made up on a Tuesday. I've seen the videos of Calvinist leaders going on about how terrible some modern worship is because we actually express love for Jesus in an emotional, metaphorical way that's just too icky. But somehow icky is okay if it's physical love because that is how much sense false religious spirits make. I don't know why he's attacking Calvinists. I, I, I don't know, but okay. I, guess what? I've seen non-Calvinists say absolutely crazy things about scriptures as well, as well but okay, okay. But hey, don't get, in other words, don't get over intellectual and don't get too rigid in your hermeneutical rules. Well, I'm sorry. I guess I'm one of those Calvinists because sometimes when I see people supposedly doing modern worship and it sounds like they're referring to Jesus as their girlfriend. Yeah, I got some problems with that because he's not your girlfriend. I know I don't have a problem with physical love because physical love and physical intimacy, I don't know, there's nothing wrong with it if done in the right way with the right person. And your own podcast, you start saying one of the signs something might be a symbol is if it 
is odd and stands out in some way. I have read through the Bible hundreds of times and the song of, uh, and the song is odd and stands out. Even if you want to take this naturalistic approach, and I will explain why I think that is very wrong, the timing and placement of it is just very odd. Everything about it is odd and stands out. Okay, now listen, that you could have just started that way. You didn't have to go through all of this attack. You didn't have to go through basically trying to act like you could have just, I said, accusing people of being silly, disingenuous, and a fruit of unbelief and bad religion. You could just said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. When I read the Song of Solomon, I see these interesting facets. And you could have just gave me the interesting, you could just list the interesting tidbits. And I would have been like, huh. Because I even gave the, I, I get, meaning I did not stay so rigid. Right there, you've already acknowledged I didn't stay so rigid. I gave a little bit of freedom to say, hey, if something is different in the text, let's address it. Let's work through it. So I'm more than willing for you to send me all of the things that you think are unique about the text that would scream, hey, 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 this should all be interpreted in a non physical way and a non-natural way, but as a spiritual allegory. Give me, give me all of them. I got, I will change my view in 1.2 seconds. It's, I can guarantee you this. The best way to change someone's hermeneutical perspective is not to attack them, call them silly, disingenuous, and basically treat them as an unbeliever. It's probably better to go, hey, I've read the Song of Solomon a hundred times. Well, I've read it a hundred times too. Okay, so all right, we're probably on the same page there. Now, just point out what you've seen. Now, if you're quote, if you're taking it from another book, please tell me which book you're getting it from. Like if you're getting it from another book, just tell me, hey, according to so-and-so, this is the 10 things they see in Song of Solomon that they think makes it unique and points to the fact that it should be interpreted in an allegorical way. I got no problem buying the book, looking at the book, reading the book. I got no problem doing 15 podcasts on the book. I mean, I've tried to demonstrate anyone who listens to me knows how willing I am to do this. Whenever there's a problem, I'm like, okay, let's spend 30 minutes. Let's spend hours doing it. I'll take it to church and make it a 15-year study. Anyone who knows me knows I'm willing to do that. You don't have to attack. Just understand that there, there are rules about hermeneutics. You use them. I Everyone uses them. Because you're going to, I guarantee you, you'll, you just pointed out that you think the Calvinists are wrong. And the way they interpret certain scriptures about worship. Well, what makes them wrong? You have to have rules to determine that they're wrong. Where did you get your rules? What system are you using? So this is not an issue about, this is just an issue about we're using different systems. Now I'll stop there and then I'll come back tonight. I'll come back tonight because I got people texting me. I have to work out a plan for food this evening. And I will, yeah, we'll read the rest of this tonight. We'll come back tonight. So I, I tell everyone, come back tonight around 8 p.m. Central Time. And let's dig in. Let's dig in and see what this person is going to give us about the Song of Solomon that may make me at the end go, hey, he's right. I'm more than willing to change my view. There's no reason to attack me. There's no reason... It's just like, all you have to do is say, hey, I approach the Song of Solomon from this perspective. Here's my hermeneutical system that I'm utilizing. Here are the three books which I 
greatly was influenced by. Here's what they have to say. Here's the page number. Here are the five things that I think clearly demonstrate Song of Solomon must be interpreted as a spiritual allegory. Would you consider? And guess what? I would turn on the microphone and consider them. All right. Yeah, someone just said, I'll be back at 8 p.m. Central Time. Yes, because there's no way I can finish this, and I'm already at an hour, and it's 975 degrees up here in the studio right now, and I'm literally pouring sweat, okay? So, yeah, it is crazy hot up here this afternoon. Yeah, I forgot to turn the AC on up downstairs, and I am burning up. So, all right, I I hope that was beneficial. It comes down to everyone has a hermeneutical like now what frustrates me everyone is using some rules of hermeneutics everyone is using rules so don't blame that those rules are too rigid those rules are too intellectual well then you want to use non-rigid non-intellectual rules so is this a battle between i take a non-rigid anti-intellectual approach to biblical hermeneutics while you take a rigid intellectual one. Okay, which system is right? The non-rigid, anti-intellectual, or non-intellectual, if you don't want to use the word anti, or is the rigid intellectual? Who gets to determine which system of hermeneutics is right? By all means, use whatever method you want. Just don't be shocked if I have a different opinion. It may not be because I'm lost. It may not be because I'm silly. It may not be because I'm disingenuous. It may mean I just have a different system of hermeneutics. Now, if you do use a non-rigid, non-intellectual one, be consistent. And don't all of a sudden demand a rigid intellectual one when it's the interpretation you want, and then violate that when you don't want it. Okay, so I just I just think you have to be you have to be careful with that, right? Whatever system you go with, you got to be consistent with. All right, there we go. Email me to the person who emailed. We will finish it. Your email tonight. I will. No, if I have to stay up till one in the morning, we will finish it. If I have to stay up all night, we'll do a an all night broadcast working on the Song of Solomon. I, I really, I just wanted everyone to just go read the Song of Solomon and then go, hmm, if I take this as a spiritual allegory, let me read this verse by verse and see if it makes sense. That's all I was really trying to accomplish this morning. And uh, I didn't know it was going to turn into all of this, but... There we go. All right. We'll come back to it this evening. In the meantime, email me. <laughs> okay. I need I need someone else's email address. I need someone else's e- The person listening, I'm going to give out their email address. Okay. Whatever your email address, I'm going to, okay, no, I'm going to give out my email address. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. And I will just say this. It is horribly sad that we can't agree on anything in the Christian world. But there will never be agreement if we can't even agree on what rules of interpretation should or shouldn't be utilized. If we can't agree on that, it's a lost cause. Thank you for listening.